What's right in front of us is Mark 6. And these are stories like the feeding of the 5,000 last week. These are stories that perhaps you're all familiar with. And I tell you what, when God tells us about His Word, that His Word is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, <laughs> He ain't kidding. Okay? Because you can read these stories time and time again. And I think that the truth and the application we're going to find today, again, well, we're just going to pray for God to give us fresh eyes, fresh ears. But let's read our passage first. It's Mark 6. Verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he would have passed them by. He would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the woes, because their heart was hardened. Let's pray. The Father in heaven, how often have we seen work that you're doing right in front of us? And maybe it would be described of us that our heart was hardened. Despite all we know, despite all we've seen, despite every way that you've revealed yourself to us, both in simply looking at creation through your word and our personal experiences, Lord, we want those teachable moldable hearts. We don't want to miss anything you do. And so as we dig into your word today, be our teacher. Touch us, Lord. In the way that only you are able to when your children are sitting humbly before you. Simply saying we need you. Because we did. Plus this time in your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week we saw a moment that was carefully orchestrated by Jesus. Bringing the crowd with the disciples and one little boy that was smart enough to bring his lunch to a deserted place. And so it was estimated that there were 5,000 there, men, 
Along with the women and children, the estimate is closer to 15 to 20,000. And the disciples went to Jesus and they were tired. It had been a long day of ministry. Jesus, we're in a deserted place. The crowd has nothing to eat. There's no place to even get food. And Jesus gives them the challenge of challenges. And he looks at them and he says, you give them something to eat. What? Yes, you give them something to eat. And this he said to test them. At that moment, what do they have? When they take inventory of what's in front of them, they have 200 denarii, which is the equivalent of six months' wages at the time. They have one little boy that was smart enough to bring his lunch that has five loaves and two fish. And again, this he said to test them. What was the test? Is that no matter how much money they had, no matter what Walmart wasn't in sight, and no matter how many loaves of bread and fish that they had, what they had in front of them was Him. That was the point. That's what they missed. They had everything they need in front of them. And so what we understood last week is that we get put in these situations that seem impossible, and the thing that is impossible with man is possible with God. Perhaps listening to this story, you were encouraged in your heart last week because you looked at Scripture, and maybe you were in a situation where you're like, I don't know how this is going to happen. You want me to what, God? And maybe in reading Scripture, what happened was that the Holy Spirit spoke to your heart and said, listen, you see the situation the disciples are in? I know you feel hopeless, but you have Jesus. You have Him. And if you have Him, you have everything you need to face the greatest problems and the greatest challenges that this life has to offer. Again, the disciples had done been through it. They went out there casting out demons. They went out there teaching. They went out there healing. Their friend John the Baptist had been beheaded. Now they had just feeded thousands upon thousands in this day of ministry, but the lesson wasn't over yet. And it rarely is when you feel tired. And maybe you have experienced this in your life, that sometimes when you feel, I'm done, I've had it, God's like, okay, now it's time for the lesson. And I'm like, no! No, I, now's the time I need rest. No, God, you know I need a nap right now. Everybody knows how PJ loves his naps. Alright, I need a nap right now. Here comes the text to come in, we've got an emergency. Or here comes the phone call. Or here comes the doorbell ringing. And you're sitting there and you're saying, God, I've had it. And he's saying, no, you haven't. Not yet. Not yet. We've got more work to do. And that's exactly what we're going to see in today's passage. And I hope this again encourages your heart because these stories are in God's Word for a reason. All of these stories are here, purposed here, put here by God for this reason. Romans 15.4 says like this. It says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. All of these stories in here... We saw a great video this week that encouraged us to understand that these stories are not about you, but they apply to you. They're not about you. They're all about God. But we can find very real application that speaks to and encourages our hearts and meets us where we're at. How many of you, I hope, came here to meet with God today? 
He said, listen, I need a word from God. I'm going through some stuff at home. I'm going through some things at work. I've got it going on, Pastor. It's coming at me from all angles. And I came here because I wanted to hear what God had to say. Can we take the truth of this book and can we apply it to this life? And the answer is invariably, yes, you can. Yes, you can. And so these lessons taught thousands of years ago and hundreds of years ago applying to the church right here today to Calvary Chapel Del Rey on this 17th day of February 2019 as God's children are gathered together ready to hear His Word. We're just going to break it down starting at verse 45. And it says here, it says, Immediately Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. Stop right there. I guess Jesus didn't read the weather report. I guess he didn't have the app on his phone that could tell him what kind of weather was coming in over the uh, sea, over the body of water that he was sending the disciples to. I guess he missed it. Or not. Or not. He knew exactly where he was sending them. He knew exactly what they were headed for. He sent the rest of them away. But he only sent the rest of them away after they had received. He sent the multitudes away after they had received spiritual food, after they had received physical provision. And now he sent them away. The disciples, it's it's evening. They've gone through a lot. And now he's telling them, listen, go to the other side of the lake. That's his command to them. Listen, if Jesus commands you to do something, he has no intention of failing. If He commands you to do something, if He calls you to do something, Jesus Christ has no intention of failing. So guess what? If He tells them they're going to go to the other side of the lake, they're going to go to the other side of the lake. And that's what He tells them to do. He tells them where to go. He tells them how to get there. But here's the thing. He doesn't say, well, here's what's going to happen. You guys are going to get in the boat. You're going to strain. You're going to be going against the wind. It is going to stink for a long time. Okay, this is going to be a tough trip, and uh, but it's okay because you will get to the other side. He doesn't tell them that. He just tells them what to do. And so can you imagine the conversation on the boat? The disciples are like, man, this has been a week. John got beheaded. We went out there. We were casting out demons. And, and somehow we just fed fifteen to 20,000 people. And I don't know exactly what happened, but they're sitting on the boat and they're absolutely baffled as, as we might be. And they're sitting there contemplating this stuff. And now they're about to get another lesson. See, there are some lessons that Jesus meant for the multitudes. And then there were some lessons just for the disciples. And then there were some lessons that he just had for three of the disciples that were always together. James, John, and Peter. And then there were, then there were lessons for the individual. Now, isn't this cool the way that God does this and the way that he speaks to his people today? Because here's what he's going to do today. He's going to speak to us as a body of Christ today as we put His truth out there. He's going to speak to a family unit, maybe a husband and wife that are here today. He's going to speak to you all together. And yet at the same time, He's going to speak to the individual. And He's going to do all of this, and so much more, He's going to do all of this through the Word and through the power of His Holy Spirit. That's how He teaches us. Somebody will walk out of here today thinking, you know what, Pastor John wrote this message for me. He wrote this message for me. 
And quite honestly, I, I probably have no idea with most of you what's happened in your life in the last 24 hours. But you'll feel that way because the Word of God is being presented with the Spirit of God and all we need to do if we want to receive it is get out of the way. Amen. Get out of the way. And so here is a special lesson coming for the disciples. So He sends them the multitude away. He sends the disciples on the boat. Verse 46 says, And when He sent them away, He departed to the mountain to pray. Stop right there. Pastor, we're really going to do this verse by verse today. Oh, you betcha. There's just too much here not to. Listen, it says here that He sent them away. He departed to the mountain to do what? Pray. To pray. Jesus, who is God, who is the Son of God, who came as a man, still God. Does that believe mine a little bit? Yeah. He goes to the mountain to pray. He knows what's coming for the disciples. He knows what they're up against. And he's going there to pray. Now, when we talk about prayer, there's this word. How many of you have heard it? It's called intercession. Okay, intercession means this is that it's praying to God on behalf of others. It's one of the most faithful things that you can do. It's one of the most selfless things that you can do. It's the single most important thing you can ever do, and you can always do it. You can always intercede for someone. Whenever you look at a situation and you see this person struggling and you feel powerless, you can always pray, and it's the most important thing, and often, often it's the only thing you're given to do in a situation. But Jesus is interceding. He's praying. He's not going up to the mountain without a purpose. He's not unaware of what's happening. He's going up there to intercede on their behalf. And this is something that we see again in Jesus' life when He is about to go to the cross and be betrayed. What do we see Jesus doing in John 17? You don't have to turn there. If you want to, you can. It's John 17. And when he's about to be betrayed, abandoned, denied, John 17, verse 6, reads like this. Listen to what he's doing. It says, I have manifested your name to the men who you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they've kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them. And have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me. What is he doing here? He's interceding, right? Skip down to verse 20, where he says this, and this should blow your mind. That he's, he's about to go to the crosses. He's about to be betrayed and abandoned and denied. Verse 20 says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Who's he praying for first? Us. What's he doing? He's interceding. What's he doing now? Listen, I just want to read this to you. It's from the book of Hebrews. 
And it's chapter 7. What's he doing now? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And this is chapter 7, verse 25. and says, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always, listen, lives to make intercession for them. What's he doing? He's interceding on your behalf until the day he calls us home. How many of you have ever had an encouraging moment where you got a text from from someone that said, you know what, I was thinking about you and I was praying for you? That's an encouragement when you receive a text like that. Right? It's an encouragement to know that somebody else was thinking about you, selflessly going before the throne of God to you. It's an encouragement when somebody comes alongside you. When you're struggling, they put their hand on their shoulder. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for you. That's an encouragement. I love when people do that. And, and, and. All right? But listen. What an encouragement is this. To know that the Jesus who loved you enough to go to a cross... I'm praying for you. He's praying for you. He's the one interceding on your behalf. And He's the one whose intercession you need. He's always interceding. And what an amazing thing for us if I'm going through the struggle at work as I'm stuck in traffic and I don't know if I'm going to get to the place I'm going on time and I'm struggling in here and I'm getting anxious and I'm getting a little angry to know you know what? He's up there interceding on my behalf and He intercedes knowing my deepest need. I don't know your deepest need. He does. Jesus knows your deepest need. But God, I need this. I need this. No, no, no. I know exactly what you need. I know you better than you know yourself. But God, you don't understand. No, I do understand. And I understand better than you think I do. And I understand better than you ever will. And He is interceding on your behalf. And when I don't know what to pray for you, and I don't know what to pray for myself, the Bible tells me simply in Romans 8 that the Spirit is groaning inside of me. So even when you don't know what to pray, you're sitting there on that You just spoke in a tongue. And God knows it. Alright, that's your prayer language there. There's your prayer language. I didn't know what to say. So I just started groaning and I just started struggling. God knows exactly what you're going through and He's interceding on your behalf. But here's the thing. If Jesus is going up to the mountain to pray and the disciples are about to go to a struggle, I would ask you this. Who are you interceding for? Who are you interceding for? And let me explain to you why we don't intercede so much. And please, please take this with the heart that it's delivered. Because sometimes we're too busy interfering to be interceding. <laughs> and all God's people said, ow. Yeah. Sometimes we're so busy interfering that we're not interceding. The thing that they need more than anything, and the thing that we can always do, is the thing that the enemy, the enemy wants to discourage you from the most. The enemy doesn't discourage me from handing someone a $5 bill and, and helping them out that way. The enemy doesn't uh, discourage me from giving someone the shirt off my back. But if I try to pray, and if I try to intercede, phone rings, text comes in, I don't feel good, I'm a little tired. God understands. That's the place that he always butts his head in. 
And so interceding is the thing that we can always do. And if Jesus is doing it, and he's doing it on behalf of the disciples, who are we not to doing it? Because the truth of the matter is this. If we're not interceding primarily, then we're really doing nothing. So Jesus is on the mountain, and he knows exactly where the disciples were, and he continues to intercede on our behalf. Verse 47, it says, Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea. And here we go. And he was alone on the land. Okay, the stage is being set. He's in the middle of the sea. The disciples are in the middle of the sea. It's believed that the lake that they were on was 13 miles long by 8 miles wide. And another passage that gives the same account, they were 3 to 4 miles out. They're right in the middle. Why does the Bible give us that piece of information? For the same reason it tells us that when he brought the multitudes out, he brought them to a deserted place. Because at the end of the day, with what he's about to do and what he's about to teach them, he's only going to be able to do it when there's no doubt that it could have been anybody else other than him. So that's why they're brought to the middle. Listen, if you feel like you're in a point in your life, when you're like, okay, I, if I go this way, it's not going to work. If I go this way, it's not going to work. If I go this way, it's not going to work. And I don't know what to do. So often God orchestrates those things because what we need at that moment is for Jesus to come through. See, they're right smack in the middle. And so he set the situation up. The, the circumstances have been orchestrated. How many of you have had circumstances in your life orchestrated where it's like, oh, I need God now. You know, I, we, we go up and we minister to uh, this beloved treatment center up north. And I always assure the clients that God brought them there. Well, Pastor John, how do you know that? And I say, well, here's the deal. There are, I don't know, 15 of us in the room right now. And how many of you would be in a Bible study at 10 o'clock on a Friday morning if not for the fact that you were here? This is how God chose to bring you to a place where you could have, where He could have your full attention for the thing that He desires to do in your life. So often the situation's orchestrated because God knows exactly what you need in order to get your full attention. He knew that Saul of Tarsus needed to be knocked off a horse. He knew it. And he knows exactly what each and every one of us need, and he knows how to meet the deepest needs. Now, if I were to ask you here today, how many of you here want a life that is that when people look back at it, they say this this person's life was only explainable by God? How many of you want that? Careful if you raise your hand. Yeah. That's where I'm going. Okay. Careful if you raise your hand. I want a life that only God can give me. Then be prepared for circumstances that only God can get you out of. Or bring you through. Be prepared for that. And that's what we see orchestrated here. But listen. It says here now in verse... 47 again. It says he was alone on the land. It's reiterating this to you. So he was on a mountain praying. He was alone on the land. But now let's take a look at verse 48. Then he saw them straining at rowing. 
for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Stop right there. Verse 48 says they were straining at rowing. And another passage that gives the same account tells us what happened there. The wind, the water was rising, and these guys, they were straining and struggling, and though they started the trip at evening, now we're at the fourth watch of the night, and they're sitting there straining. But wait a second. Didn't Jesus tell us to go here? If Jesus told us to go here, then this should be a lot easier than this. If Jesus told us to go to the other side, then this trip should be a heck of a lot easier than what we're going through right now. And man, how many of you felt that? Listen, I'm doing everything that God wants me to. I'm going to church, I'm praying, I'm serving, I'm worshiping, and I'm still straining. You're going, as Bob Seeger said, against the wind. You're going against the wind. Why? Because doing what God says is not the promise that you're not going to strain and that you're not going to struggle. And He knows exactly what it is that you're going through. He knows where He sent you and, he, and He's aware of every bit of this. So there's the promise of struggle. There's the promise of straining. And you'd say, Pastor, well, then why follow Jesus? Because I'm going to strain if I do things on my own. Right? If I do things on my own, apart from God's will, I'm going to strain. But if you're sitting here telling me that these guys did exactly what Jesus told them to, and they're straining anyway, then what's the difference? Why? Listen. Because through every bit of our straining in obedience to God, what's happening is there's strength. Through every bit of your straining, there's a strengthening. And understand that is that the obedience to God is it's really the promise that things are going to get a little tough, that you're going to struggle. And if you're not struggling, then I would question, well, are you really following them? Because if you understand what it means to follow them, you're going to be struggling. You're going to be straining. Why? Because you're going against the culture. Listen, you might be asked to stand for some things in the workplace. Here you are in the workplace, and they're starting to gossip. Well, you know, this one doesn't do their job right, and they're doing this, and they're, and they're doing that. And, and you're sitting there, and now everybody's talking, and now you feel, you know what? God's calling me to chime in here. Yeah, you're right. They're lazy. God's asking us to go counterculture. He's asking, uh, if the rest of the crowd is going in this direction and they're getting into these debates and everybody's going wild and nuts and crazy on Facebook, He might be asking you to do this. You understand? He's asking you to go counterculture. The culture is on a highway to hell. Quite honestly. The culture is on a highway to hell. And the Christian is being called to be counter-culture. The way you love, the way you show joy, the way you forgive, the peace that you display. And so here they are, and they're straining. Listen, Abel did the right thing. He was murdered by his brother. Joseph did the right thing. He was falsely accused of rape. Daniel did the right thing. He was thrown into a lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did the right thing. 
Well, and they were put in a fiery furnace. Jesus got baptized. And after his baptism, God said, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased in. Let's drop him off in the desert. <laughs> so to anybody here that's saying, well, I think I want to get baptized, but I just read that passage, and I read that after the passage, that's when, that's when Satan really came with both barrels. I think I'll hold off on this decision for a moment. Listen, Jesus did the right thing, continued to do the right thing, as no man could ever do the right thing, and then he was rewarded with a cross. Yeah. A cross. And so obedience, it's fair to say, is going to be met with struggle. But here's the thing, and it's still in verse 48. It's back at the beginning of the verse, though. It says, and I hope that this blows your mind as much as it blew my mind in studying it. I was studying this with my wife, and as we were studying it together, she was like, she brought up the following. It says, then he saw them straining. Wait, 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 wait. The passage just said he was on a mountain, he was alone on land, and they were three to four miles into the water, and it's dark. It's the fourth watch of night between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., and he saw them. What? How many of you have been driving on a road that's not lit and you can't see in front of your face? <laughs> and that's the point. You see, here's one thing that we want to make sure that we understand about Jesus as we go through this passage. You will understand it, is that He's God. He's God. Most of us can't see in the dark three to four miles on top of a mountain. What's going on? Three to four miles in the water. It says here He saw them. I hope that this comforts your heart more than almost anything we read today, that you look at that and you know that whatever situation and circumstances have been orchestrated, listen, there's nothing that you're going through that He is not aware of. There's nothing that you're going through that He doesn't see. Nothing got past Him. Nothing that you brought upon yourself. Nothing that happened to you because we're in a fallen world. Nothing got past Him. It says here, if God can see the disciples... As he comes as a man, if he can see them three to four miles out in the water when it's dark out, and now he's, in, now he's the God of heaven, is there anything that you're going through that he's not aware of? The answer is invariably, definitively, no. He knows what you're going through. He saw them. One of my favorite terms, that's mind-numbing to me. Listen, if I take these off. <laughs> I put them back on. <laughs> if I take these off, I can make out images. I don't care how good your vision is. You can't see three to four miles out to the water when it's dark out. But no matter how dark our circumstances get, no matter how dark your life gets, and you think that nobody's there, you think that nobody knows, you think that nobody cares, and you think that nobody's watching, you're wrong. He does. He does. He saw them. 
And it says in the middle of verse 48, now about the fourth watch of the night, again, this is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Why? Why would he have just walked by if he saw them struggling? You see, you would think, again, the disciples were being tested here, you would think that after all that they had seen, in the rest of, even in the book of Mark alone, some of the things that we saw is that Jesus forgave sins. They watched him do that. They watched him make a lame man rise. They watched him cast out demons multiple times. They saw him heal a fever, but they also saw him bring the dead back to life. They just saw him heal a woman that had been sick for 12 years. They saw him feed the multitudes, and they're still struggling to believe. And he would have passed them by. And we're going to see why in a couple of minutes in the passage because of the hardness of their hearts. He would have passed them by. Verse 49 says, And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost. And they cried, What? Listen! They saw him walking on the sea and they said, no, 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 it's got to be a ghost or something like that. Where has your disbelief taken you? And what has it prevented you from experiencing about God? Why was this such a test? Here's why. Because not only had they seen all the miracles that I just told you about, but let me read to you something that we studied weeks ago. And it's in Mark 4 also. It's Mark 4 verse 35. It says, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. And when they had left the multitude, they took him alone on the boat as he was. And the other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern. What was he doing? Sleeping. He was asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? <coughs> Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. What was their experience with God? Watch this. It says, After he said, Peace be still, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He was in the boat and they went to him while he was sleeping and he said, Peace be still. And the storm was over. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, listen to what they say here, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? What's the difference between that situation and this situation? Well, he's not on the boat. He's not on the boat. But that's okay because he's walking on the water. That's exciting. I don't know, I find it exciting. And why is he walking on the water? What does he want to show them? Two words. And I don't think you'll have to write this down. He's God. He's God. He wants them to know he's God. Through their struggle, you're on the water. I know I was with you in the boat before. This was a test that was orchestrated for you. I'm not on the boat, but that's okay because I am walking on the water. Because I'm God. And you would say, well, why can't I walk on the water? 
fairly simple. You're not God. Okay? Pastor, you're getting pretty basic. No, this is important. This is really important. The reason that that was orchestrated the way that it was is because Jesus, when he walked this earth, came as a man, but he was God. He had divested himself of his deity, but he was still God. And so the Father, the Holy Spirit, the miracles, the wisdom, the knowledge, he is in full submission to them as they are given to him. And so he's still God. He's God. He's walking on the water. Now we're going to go somewhere with this. But the first thing that you have to understand is that the thing that is threatening to you, He has complete, total power and mastery over. Whatever it is. So the disciples, he would have passed them by. But it says here in verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and they cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them. And he said, be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. They first thought he was a ghost. It says that he would have passed them by, but they cried out. Here's what they didn't say. According to Scripture, they didn't say, Jesus, help us. They thought he was a ghost. They thought he was afraid. What he saw was genuine fear of the children that he loved. The desire for them to show faith and say, well, that's Jesus. We're going to be just fine. That would be passing the test. That's Jesus. We're going to be okay. Everything is going to be fine. But it's a cry of desperation. When my daughter cries, I can't always understand what is bothering her. <clears throat> this bothers me. But when she cries, I'm her dad. I'm going to her. Because she's my daughter. These are the disciples that have been entrusted to them. And despite that they're crying out in fear and not in faith, Jesus still says, okay, okay. Be of good cheer. It's okay. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now the Bible says that the fear of God, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, the respect and the reverence, He doesn't want a bunch of terrified children walking around. Be of good cheer. Let your hearts be encouraged because I'm here. Better translated this... Uh, it is I. Better translated, I am. I am. And because the I am is here, you are going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And it's a similar message that maybe He wants to relay to us today. Maybe we've forgotten all the things that we've been delivered from. All the things that God has delivered us from in the past. And we sit there and we've got a mountain in front of us and we're saying, God, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. And He's trying to say, you're not. But be of good cheer. I am. It is I. It is I. You're not going down. You're not going down. But when we're done with this experience, you're going to understand something about me that perhaps you never understood before. 
Now it says, at that moment, in another passage, it says that at that moment, after he had identified himself, it says here that Peter said this, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, why isn't this recorded in Mark's Gospel? For the same reason it isn't really recorded about the little boy that brought the five loaves and two fish. That's recorded in the other accounts, but it's not recorded in Mark's Gospel. Why is that? Well, because Mark's Gospel, its belief was given to him by Peter. It's believed that the information was relieved by Peter. And so maybe Peter was of one of two mindsets where Peter might have said, okay, well, I don't want to draw any attention because I'm the only other human being that's ever walked on water. Or maybe Peter didn't want you to know that he fell in. Either way, okay, either way, it's not recorded in here, but here's the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is that Peter does get off the boat and the other 11 disciples stay. And what Peter realizes is this, and it's a simple lesson, is that when he walks on the water and his eyes are on Jesus, he's walking on the water. And when he takes his eyes off of Jesus, what happens is he's falling in the water. But that's okay because when he's falling in the water, when he cries out to Jesus, Jesus helps him out of the water. And it's not a fail on his part. Because how many other human beings can even say they took one step on the water? None. None. Back to our passage in Mark. We're going to finish up. Tomorrow. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> it says, Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marvel. For they had not understood about the loaves because, listen, their heart was hardened. Listen, every time you see the truth of God and you deny it or you walk away from it or He's speaking to you and you reject it, what's happening is that there's a callousness coming. There's a hardening that's happening. For somebody that came into this room and they've never received the truth of Christ, what happens is every time you reject it, the heart gets hardened. But for the Christian who's being told the truth and not responding to it, what's happening is the Holy Spirit, sometimes you sense, is getting quieter. Quieter. And quieter. And quieter. But they marveled. And the Bible tells us this, is that when he got in the boat, somehow they were at the other side. The wind ceased and they were exactly where they were supposed to be, and here's why. Because what they didn't know, what they were learning, was that their destination, their destination was supposed to be not the other side of the lake, but our destination, just like their destination, is always supposed to be a person. Our destination is Jesus. And he'll allow all the circumstances in your life to be orchestrated so he can get you to that destination. That's the primary destination. Everything else is great. But the primary destination, your primary destination, is a person. God desires more than anything to draw you into this love relationship. So let's take a look and see how this whole thing works out. Okay? What you have is Jesus on land on a mountain and his people in the water in trouble kind of like us 
Jesus is in heaven. And sometimes on this earth, we feel like we're straining and drowning. Okay? And what you have is this. He appears and he's walking on the water. Showing that he has mastery over the very thing that looks like it's about to conquer you and destroy you. But what he's saying is you can be of good cheer because I am. And I'm here to strengthen you. And when we're done with this situation, after you've seen me walking on the water, after I get in the boat, what you're going to understand is something about me perhaps that you never understood before. You see, because if it wasn't orchestrated like this, here's what the disciples would not understand. They wouldn't understand. They might have understand that he could stop the wind and the waves, but they wouldn't understand that he could walk on it unless it was orchestrated specifically like this. And what he's trying to get them to do is to draw their trust and put their faith in him through their struggle. There's a pastor who writes for Desiring God. His name is John Bloom. And he writes it like this. He talks about something called spatial disorientation. How many of you have heard of it? Spatial disorientation? something that pilots experience. It says, spatial disorientation is what a pilot experiences when he's flying in weather conditions that prevent him from being able to see the horizon or the ground. These are points of reference that guide his senses and they disappear. His perception becomes unreliable. He can no longer be sure which way is up or down. And it can be deadly is what killed John F. Kennedy Jr. The only way a pilot can overcome spatial disorientation is to trust his cockpit instruments more than his intuitive senses to tell him what is real. That's why flight instructors force student pilots to learn to fly planes by the instruments alone. There's a spiritual parallel. Bloom relates, he said, I've experienced it on spring day in May 1997. I flew into a spiritual storm. The details are too lengthy, but essentially I had a crisis of faith. I had a tempest of doubt like nothing I had ever experienced before. God, who I had known and loved since late childhood, suddenly became clouded from my spiritual sight. I couldn't see Him anywhere. It got very dark in my soul, and swirling winds of fear blew with gale force. The turbulence of hopelessness was violent. Not knowing which way was up or down, I found myself in a spiritual, spatial disorientation. It was panicky at first. I swerved back and forth desperately trying to get my bearings, but one day a thought hit me with unusual clarity. John, fly by the instruments. That's what they're there for. Stop trusting your perception. Trust what the instruments tell you. In the years leading up to this experience, God had trained me in various ways to trust His Word, and I had always found it reliable. So now during this raging storm, when everything seemed uncertain, I had a choice. Trust my doubt-filled perceptions or trust God's Word. Well, since my doubts were leading me deeper into confusion and darkness, and since God's promises had given me more light and hope than anything I had ever known, I decided to steer by the Bible's direction, and I had enough evidence to determine that it was uh, an instrument without fault. That was hard, and it was frightening. And many times I fought the temptation to ditch the instruments and go with my senses of what was true, but I had enough experience and knew enough Bible to know where sense can lead. Where sense can lead. So I continued devotional Bible reading, prayer, church, small group attendance. 
I opened my heart to trusted friends and mentors and sought counsel. I remember John Piper saying to me, John, the rock of truth under your feet will not long feel like sand. And when he said it, my thought was, I hope you're right, but I doubt you are. My doubts proved wrong. And after a long season of darkness, God pierced the clouds with his light. And I'll never forget that day. I wish I had time to explain, but it's a long story. And since God's ways and timing with each of us are different, maybe it's best that you just know that God brought the storm to an end. It didn't end immediately. But as the sun of life broke through, the storm dissipated, and finally I flew into clear skies. God's promises proved to be reliable instruments, even though I doubted them in the middle of the struggle.